This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive, here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest is Karen Russell, author of the Pulitzer Prize finalist novel Swamplandia and the short story collections St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, and Orange World. Russell was born and raised in Miami and now lives in Portland, Oregon. She is the endowed chair of Texas State University's MFA program and teaches there in the fall semesters. In her latest short story collection, Orange World, Karen Russell presents the magical alongside the tangible day-to-day of lived experience, the absurd alongside heartbreaking reality, and asks the reader to think deeper about our natural world, political climate, and domestic realities. The stories in Orange World feature a new mother who seals a deal with the devil, allowing him to breastfeed from her if her newborn can live despite the odds against him a couple who become literally invaded by a Joshua tree, a teen who falls in love with a mummy found in a bog, and runaways who go to a party with the dead. At the heart of Orange World is an exploration of the unsteady times we are living in. We began the interview with Karen Russell sharing when she first heard the term Orange World, what it means to her, and how that manifested into a story and then a collection. I think because I have... (laughs) These Floridian roots, many people have just assumed it's a reference to Orange World in Orlando, Florida, which if you Google it, this giant orange (laughs) that you can enter and buy, you know, citrus-themed products. And besides just like the sort of, to me, very beautiful round sound of it, you know, and the kind of somber glow of an orange world, um, it, it was a gift from kind of an unlikely place, which was our new parenting class. I was maybe six or seven months pregnant with my son. And we were going to, you know, all those compulsory classes, and this was the safety class where they somehow inadvertently made all of us feel like our children were going to die in these gruesome household accidents. (laughs) And the metaphor that this educator 
gave us was, you know, there's green world and that's this sort of fantasy place. You know, what we, what we know children deserve and what we can never give them, which is like, you know, full attention, perfect safety, perfect protection. And then she described red world, which really in her version was just, you know, everybody choking on grapes and just flung out of passenger seats and just a horror show of sort of neglect and abuse of various kinds. And then she said, but there's orange world. And she said this interestingly a month before the election. <laughs> so maybe she was prescient. I don't know. She was like, orange world is where most of us live. And I just, you know, I sort of loved the idea of that because there is a way where I, I do sort of think all the stories in this collection are set in a kind of limbo, you know, between some beautiful dream, you know, of what these characters wish life could be or what they hope they're arrowing towards and, you know, a real hellscape. Just that it's a really slippery place, right? I think in every one of these stories, you feel those kind of two poles pulling at people. And I think every, everybody knows about how precarious, you know, your most basic Wednesday can sometimes feel, you know, like it takes one accident or one phone call to transform that orange world into a red world. And then briefly, sometimes <laughs> you transcend the moment you're living in and you're in, in, in like a tiny bubble of heaven. But I think for most people, that's sort of a, a very provisional state. Does the woman know that you got a story and a book title out of that? It's so funny. I was just thinking about her. She was a, she was such a sweet person, and, and it's my sincere hope she never finds out about this book because I think I love that metaphor, and I don't want her to feel self conscious about it. I don't know. And the story, you know, that the the educator in the story, you know, is it, sort of it's not the most flattering uh, portrait, I don't think. So if 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 that real woman happens to hear this podcast, stay the course. You did a great job. <laughs> In in the Orange World story, you have this mother. She's pregnant. Gets bad news that maybe her her son won't survive even till birth, and she seems like I think she's dealt with some miscarriages before. And so she makes a deal with the devil, basically saying, "I'll I'll breastfeed you if you make sure my baby's born and is okay." And that's what happened. And the the she's trying to live in this world where she does the best she can. In her parenting class, the other women are like, eh, you made this deal with the devil. That's like a rookie mistake. You, you don't have to do that. He's just pulling the wool over your mm -hmm. eyes. You can stop doing it. And one of the lines later was that basically you have to admit that you are powerless. And that's the thing, right? When you make deals or when you pray, you are sort of trying to find some power in places where you don't. And I'm wondering if you could talk mm -hmm. about this this feeling of powerlessness both maybe in this story, but also is that necessary on some level for your characters? I love that question. And I think it's a little bit of a paradox, I think, that this woman has sort of surrendered in some ways, you know, to, to she thinks that, that fear is, is kind of a talisman against fear. She thinks that if she deviates from this sort of pattern she's established with this devil, other deviations will occur. And that's a state that I think I'm familiar with. And I don't even think, you know, you know, if you zoom out a little, I think that, you know, that can apply to any number of holding patterns that humans get into, right? You know, um, I think addiction can work like that, you know, addiction of all, all stripes. And I think we're living in this moment where people are very afraid, you know, for warranted reasons. I think fear can make people so easy to control, you know, or so vulnerable to kind of <laughs> huckster demons in this case. But but there is this sort of that fantasy, which is familiar to me too, a real fantasy, sort of like a 
substitution fantasy that if you could accept some bargain, if you could avoid the absolute worst, you would sign on to almost anything else, right? Just because this is such an uncertain realm and it's so difficult to, to live with that precarity. I found, you know, particularly on, on this threshold where there's this new abject dependent, you know, or even before, I think pregnancy was a really interesting state for me because on the one hand, there's a lot of messaging to women that you are responsible. <laughs> you know, if you have sushi, you know, there are all these sort of rules around the ways that, you know, you feel like, oh, if I make the wrong choice at a diner, this could negatively impact my baby for the rest of time. You know, they, they put that kind of pressure on women um, with some of these recommendations. But in a way, that's it's easier to live in that kind of fear and control than sort of surrendering to this idea that something is growing unstoppably in your body and you have no control, you know, and you're very powerless over progress. I think what I wanted this to be, instead of sort of this woman's kind of private terror or her private nightmare, really a communal story in some ways, because that was my experience anyway. It was like such a consoling and healing one. You know, these everybody's journey is very individual, but I think I found that there were many people who had experienced all kinds of trauma around, you know, pregnancy or childbirth and, and could echo back this fear to me and also sort of, you know, they had found a way through it. And it was, it was sort of like, oh, our demon, not just my demon, <laughs> you know. I wanted to talk about the bad graft in the sense that, so you have this couple, Andy and Angie, and she was sober, you know, trying to find her fitting in the world. They hadn't been dating very long, but they basically take off, go across the country and go to Joshua Tree. And she is, they go for a hike and she gets basically pricked by a Joshua Tree cut and the, the spirit of the tree infects her. So she's basically now possessed by the tree. And I'm curious about your personal experience seeing Joshua Trees and then how this story was born. So I I had never been to the desert before and I, it was where I went on sort of my first real date with my now husband. Um, And he is always keen for me to say that this story is not autobiographical, which is really true. Actually, I think we're, those two characters are are quite different um, than who I feel us to be. But um, there was a a beautiful review I loved um, in the New York Review of Books. And and I thought it articulated something that I, you know, that I felt while I was drafting this story, which is that couples on a road trip together, you know, a young couple, part of their business is creating a retrospect. You know, you, you need sort of this foundational myth to launch from as a couple. So they're kind of, it's sort of this honeymoon trip for them and they've chosen, you know, perversely <laughs> this, this desert that's announcing to them kind of keep out, you know, in the way that that landscape, part of what's sublime about it is you do sort of feel like a trespasser there, you know, as a, as a hairless mammal, there's not a lot encouraging you to put down a root. So I was also just really, one of the, the myths from the metamorphoses that I loved the most and that sort of terrified me and other times seemed almost hilarious to me and sad was um, Daphne and Apollo, right? So Apollo is pursuing her and to escape him, she becomes a tree. And I think long before I could articulate why I found this image so haunting, you know, even as a kid, that, that particular existential bargain where people respond to a threat or a trauma, you know, by just sort of <laughs> becoming a tree, right? By holding one pose or shutting parts of themselves down or, you know, a kind of paralysis or dormancy, you know, a dormant period. 
that felt really familiar to me. Um, I felt like adults in my life, that that is what had happened to them. And later, you know, I felt, you know, I felt I could see myself in that story, you know, in different ways. So I, I just thought, I think it's sort of a challenge. I was like, I wonder if I could rewrite this myth in Joshua Tree. Those trees already look so animate to me. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, they really, they have this sort of like Jim Henson-y <laughs> Muppet-like quality. They're so ancient and they're, you know, these needly, you know, multi-armed sort of ramifying monster trees. And they, they just look hilarious and scary to me. And I, I sort of, I felt infected by them. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about that place. So this is like a very long winded way to say that I think that story was a little bit born from feeling the vertigo of falling in love with somebody in this swooning landscape and ha- and the confusion of being a very new couple in a very old place. <laughs> you know, feeling sort of like the yawning expanse of time, you know, that that's tough to sort of not feel insignificant in the desert in a strangely pleasurable way. And, you know, this is sort of like sand blowing everywhere at a moment when I was sort of wondering myself, you know, how long is our story together as a couple going to be? Later, you know, much later when I was working on this story, I learned about I went on this nerdy deep dive and I learned about the Joshua tree and the Yucca moth, which, you know, Charles Darwin thought was like the most fascinating relationship in nature. But yeah, so I, so I went on this deep dive and I found out about these, these two creatures that are completely interdependent. I mean, they, it's a very old sort of millennial love story. They evolved together and the Joshua tree is, you know, entirely dependent on this particular species of moth for pollination and the moth entirely dependent on the Joshua and so there is something like fragile and resilient about that. And it, as a metaphor, what I liked about it was it gave me a way to think about, you know, how a mutual dependency that is so profound can be a love story and a horror story in a way, you know, it can just keep holographically toggling between both for this couple. Right. I just think that there's for both of them in different ways, there's something terrifying about taking your single life and grafting it to another life and saying, all right, we're intertwined now, you know, we share one fate. And then in this planetary way, I think we've all been sort of coming up against that, you know, in these, particularly in these last few years where climate change is so much on the forefront of everybody's mind, you know, understanding like it is a total fantasy to think that you're this discreet individual in the bathysphere of yourself, you know, that how porous we all are and how completely dependent on, other species, you know, and on on our ecosystems we are. One of the things that you wrote in that story was about humans was that, you know, you can transmutate a stray meeting into a first chapter. And we've all had that, mm-hmm. right? We've all we've all had to meet someone once at the for the first time, even if we marry the person we grew up next door. There's always a first meeting. And I'm always kind of blown away that the only given you have in this world is that you're born with a mother. Like, that has to be it. Like, the father doesn't have to be there. Yeah. And and how many connections we make, even, you know, at 50 years old, like, how many people I know really handed nothing and no one amazes me. And I'm also wondering if there's something about that. Oh, that... that's so beautiful. I'm not, I love thinking about all those, right, just intertwining root systems that, that people make. It, it seems it seems kind of unlikely. You're right. <laughs> you start out with just that one umbilicus, right? <laughs> it's really a gift. I mean, you know, when we're looking for miracles, sometimes that's just enough to be like, wow, I knew nothing. Yeah. 
and no one. But I wonder if there's something about that that is also true about writing stories for you in that you have a first meeting and it becomes something. And and so what I'm thinking about is maybe that woman who said the line about the orange world or you're thinking about the injustice of color and racism and you write about a doctor who's operating on the dead, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So how does a first meeting for you of an idea or a phrase turn into a story? I really love that question because it does feel a little arbitrary, right, sometimes in the same way that it is unclear if you meet somebody at a party, if you'll ever see them again or if they're going to be like, <laughs> you know, your partner for the next five decades, right? It's not, Nothing is really inevitable, as you say. I, I just sort of think when people talk about, oh, I was always destined for so-and-so, that's not, that's never really how I feel about anything that's happened to me. It always seems like this very radical contingency. You know, and so that's interesting me to, to me too, though, I guess, talk, speaking about pow- where we have power and what we're powerless over. And there is, there's some truth to both, right? You're sort of powerless over maybe who you fall in love with or certain aspects of the shape that your life takes, right? If like the, the hammer of a storm falls on you, if you're, if you're born into a world of extremely constrained possibilities, you know, what, but there is this truth that, you know, sometimes people meet one another and they hold on, you know, for mysterious reasons or, or people are able to consciously turn, sometimes literally turn around, you know, in a different direction. And um, uh, with stories, I think it's both things, too. I think you don't really have total control over what you can make live. So I've had some ideas that I was really excited about. And I just, for whatever reason, like they never took flight. I could never get the flat language to take on any kind of dimensionality. And they were just these dead in the water stories, you know, and then who knows what, and and I also, you know, I mentioned that for the Joshua trees, why did they stick around? I was only in Joshua tree national park for three days, you know, Um, why was that sort of, why was that image of those trees dancing behind us? Right. Why, you know, they, they wouldn't leave me alone. And that happened to me with a couple of stories in this collection um, I went to Timberline Lodge. I live in Oregon now, and I went to visit Timberline Lodge, and I just saw this ski lift in, in deep July, and and that was that. You know, that sort of became an image or a tableau or something, right? This sort of, it was still alive in my mind, and it started to magnetize other possibilities and meanings. And I, But I think that's the part that we don't have total control over or that I feel like I don't, that I feel is always mysterious to me. You know, sort of what haunts you and why. Um, what you can make live on the page and then and then maybe you have kind of consciously committed to a story and then that you know then there's a lot of sort of conscious effort to sort of muscle it into (laughs) into its final form. Do you feel like with your stories because they sort of blend reality with fantastical elements that you have to do any work grounding your readers, or even set up rules for yourself when you're writing it about what's true to this world or not? Or do you not worry about that? Oh, no, I always worry about that. I always worry about that. And I think I sometimes need good editors to help me to kind of tune things up, you know, but I, you know, for for example, there's a story in this collection, The Bog Girl. I think there were just a couple logistical questions that might arise. This is about this, like, this weirdo teenager. He's, he's, um, riding this industrial harvester around a peat moss bog, and he discovers this, you know, this frequently happens in, in real bogs, this thousand, multi-thousand-year-old body 
of a young woman, you know, around his same age who was murdered. For me, this, this had to happen in a place that was a few degrees west of our reality. And I really was conscious of wanting to let the reader off the hook of being distracted by questions such as, is this body decomposed? You know, <laughs> just sort of in a more realistic story, the questions you would ask, right? You, would, you probably wouldn't really read very far into a story about a boy who dragged a corpse back to his house. You know, that would be just like a, a sick criminal person, I think, <laughs> you know? So figuring out tonally, you know, I think in beginnings feel really important to me for this reason, you know, setting up the right kind of spell so that readers understand the world they're in and what's possible and impossible there and what, what's consequential there, you know, without getting distracted maybe by the questions that you would ask if I just told you in paraphrase, hey, a kid found a body and took it home with him and fell in love with it, you know? So there, there was a little tinkering there. I mean, one of the things that I tried, I don't know if it works for everybody, but I have this outside authority come, you know, the police on this little island come and they kind of take in the situation and they assess this body is not a recent murder victim. And then they're like, all right, whatever, you're free to take her home. So there are little notes like that that I tried to sound just to confirm the reader's sense that, you know, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, and that's not really the focus of this um, adventure that we're on. You know, I don't, I, so, and that I think making sure that readers, the tornado story was another one where I just, there are different, you know, different sentences. I tried to insert just to sort of signal to the reader, you know, I, this is the ante. I'm asking you to believe that it's possible <laughs> to <laughs> breed a literal tornado and keep it in, in a tornado shelter. You know, I've had some good teachers on that front. I, I love, the metamorphosis, right, where like the very first line tells you that Gregor wakes up in the body of a giant roach and, and you know right away what kind of world you're in. You know, you, you sort of, my friend called it the fish slap to the face technique. And then there are other people where it's a little bit more of a slow burn. I love Kelly Link and I just feel like tonally she works this magic also where you're completely under her spell. You're enchanted in a way. And there's something even about the rhythms of the prose that um, that help you to slide into that state of acceptance as a reader. I get frustrated sometimes when people talk about fantasy or science fiction or as a sort of escapism, you know, or something that's sort of magical in like the shallow Disney way instead of another language, you know, to present reality. <laughs> you mentioned the tornado auction and... This story had my favorite ending, so I don't know if if that's Yay, cool to, to talk about the God, ending. Missy, that fucking ending took me forever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thank uh, you so much. That makes my day. I'm going to tell my husband because he read 47 versions of that ending. You know, slightly different. You know, in the like Chinese water torture way. Um, is it okay if we talk about it? Yeah, I would love to. This I can't even tell you. I'm like up on a parade float in my own mind now. I'm so happy. Oh, good. I hope I hope <laughs> you're wearing sparkles. You know, does that happen to you though, where you enter a state of just true? I mean, this was like true mental illness. I think where I was just changing like pronouns. You know, at one point, and and my editor, at, you know, she's so wonderful, but she was like, okay, this is just the lateral move. You know, <laughs> nothing is getting better or worse at this point. So in this story, um, Robert, I think that's the the main character's name, he, he he's kind of, his wife has, has died, his adult children have moved off, he spent his youth sort of breeding these storms, and, and that's the, the premise of the story, is that you breed these storms, a tornado or something big, and you 
can release them into the world. And and when he was younger breeding these storms, he got into some trouble. His daughter was hurt. And he's been out of it for about 15 years. And he goes by an auction and he basically bets the farm. He he spends every cent he has to buy this fledgling tornado. And he's basically going for broke to maybe experience this last sense of freedom. And so he he brews this this tornado that gets out. I guess it's worth saying he's you know he's kind of outlived many of the people. We we were talking about those connections that you make from birth forward. His daughters are adults and and you know they live in cities. He feels sort of estranged from them and he's somebody who you get the sense it's it's sort of difficult for him to maintain those kinds of relationships. He's outlived his wife, you know, a lot of his competitors. And there is this sort of sense that he has, you know, that he's already inhabiting his own afterlife in a way and that he has like kind of the privilege of a ghost, you know, or a, or a kind of freedom at last to take this, this crazy risk and be monomaniacal, you know, finally, right? He has this, this fantasy, really, that he can act with impunity. I thought of him, I, I actually really identify with this character in a lot of ways. And I sort of, I, he's kind of like this, he has a leer-like blindness a little bit. I think at one point he literally takes off his glasses because he would prefer to see, you know, the sublime blur of this possibility instead of, you know, some of the hard edges of, you know, reality, you know, one of which might be that, you know, he's putting himself at risk and that it's not entirely true that he can behave in this mad way without hurting anybody. Because he, he's successful with the storm and it gets out and it's it's very um, powerful and can be very harmful, he he's struck down by it and he sort of sees his death happen before, before his eyes. And he's pretty much, he's gone for broke. He feels like he has nothing left. He's been ignoring his daughter's phone calls. His wife is dead. And he sort of says, okay, this is it. I've seen death. And then he kind of makes a choice to not go to that side. You say, but let's not mistake this for a happy ending. Nothing destroyed me and nothing is over. You know, I think what was very difficult for me about landing on the right ending, and it felt to me like, I'm sure it won't work for everybody. I don't know. It feels like such a violation of the rules that you internalize about fiction, you know, to have him sort of explicitly... (laughs) address the reader and say, I don't want you to mistake this. This was not, this was not my happy ending, in fact. But I think that's the kind of character that he is. I mean, he's sort of been nattering away at you for (laughs) this whole story. What felt difficult to me about having an ending where I even think, you know, it's possible that you read this and, and you sort of hunger for there to be some terrible consequence or simultaneously, like you wish for this man to ascend into the clouds and kind of merge with this storm he made. And, um, and he certainly, he longs for that, right? a kind of transcendence, but also a kind of annihilation. And he, you get the sense this is not his first rodeo with that particular cocktail of self-destructive longing. This is a character who, you know, he, he muses at one point, you know, now I understand why my father needed to do this too, needed to raise these storms. I'm not angry at him. I don't understand the mechanisms by which these things are inherited, but I have that, that need too. You know, there's a sort of bitterness that I wanted to find some way to communicate to because, I remember talking with the editor about this in a first draft, which had a different ending. His reading was so um, opposite what I had hoped to communicate. And his reading was that it was sort of a more straightforward, happy ending, you know, that this father, you know, the wind sort of in his own mind blew him on and he was able to 
reckon with the fact that his death would cause real damage to his daughters. It would get into them and he wouldn't know what it would do to them. You know, like the the image of his body on the roadside, you know, that and he, he understood well how those kinds of memories can inhabit you and drive you to do dark things. And and that ultimately was what kind of kept him from this sort of suicidal impulse to to drive right into his own storm. This isn't a, in any way a happy ending for this character. Nothing destroyed him. And that the real storm that he's driving back into, it's sort of what you, you were just talking about. It's, it's this sort of daily and continuous living that he's committed to doing. You know, he's going to go home. He's going to have to, like, answer the phone and deal with his adult daughters and his stack of bills and, you know, just the exigencies of being alive. There's a part of him that would really prefer to just be smoke in the clouds, you know. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I thought just because, in a funny way, this really helped me with the bad graft. I read a little bit from the Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. They had a house of crystal pillars on the planet Mars by the edge of an empty sea. And every morning you could see Mrs. K eating the golden fruits that grew from the crystal walls or cleaning the house with handfuls of magnetic dust, which, taking all dirt with it, blew away on the hot wind. Afternoon, when the fossil sea was warm and motionless, and the wine trees stood stiff in the yard, and the little distant Martian bone town was all enclosed, no one drifted out their doors. You could see Mr. K himself in his room, reading from a metal book with raised hieroglyphs over which he brushed his hand as one might play a harp. And from the book, as his fingers stroked a voice sang, a soft, ancient voice, which told tales of when the sea was red steam on the shore, and ancient men had carried clouds of metal insects and electric spiders into battle. Mr. and Mrs. K had lived by the Dead Sea for 20 years, and their ancestors had lived in the same house, which turned and followed the sun, flower-like, for 10 centuries. Mr. and Mrs. K were not old. They had the fair brownish skin of the true Martian, the yellow coin eyes, the soft musical voices. Once they had liked painting pictures with chemical fire, swimming in the canals in the seasons when the wine trees filled them with green liquors, and talking into the dawn together by the blue phosphorus portraits in the speaking room. They were not happy now. That's it. (laughs) Do you want to say a little more about why you chose that? I mean, I love Bradbury as a kid, and I love him still. I think what seemed amazing to me about this, you know, returning to it, I mean, I'm not the first one to observe that the desert can feel like a Martian landscape, you know, particularly if you're not from that part of the country. So it was, you know, thinking about, you know, there's some line in in the background that, you know, about dead red rockets awaiting repair that I'm sure was just sort of branded into me by Bradbury. But but beyond his sort of description of this landscape, I think it's the velocity at which you're getting a whole world in that paragraph. Um, and, and the ways that he mixes these fabulous inventions, right? Cleaning the house with handfuls of magnetic dust, which takes all the dirt with it and blows away on the hot wind. You know, these almost like Jetsonian innovations or something. And then these, you know, these sort of recognizable domestic details that, that orient us a little bit, right? Everybody can picture, you know, a wife eating fruit in the morning (laughs) while her husband plays his instrument. There's a line a little later in this story about marriage made people old and familiar while still young. 
and you feel that as you're meeting these characters. You know, I love that line about how <laughs> they've lived in the same house for 20 years. You know, you're sort of getting this idea of this very kind of stable domestic existence. And then one quad later, the same house which turned and followed the sun flower-like for 10 centuries. So I think it's something about that mixture of just like the child joy of reading somebody's imagination, somebody's innovation. But it's not just pure invention, right? I mean, there are these two characters and they're Martians, but they feel so familiar to me kind of immediately. And you get such a strong sense of their marriage. And, and also just the, I think I was really schooled in, you know, show, don't tell. But there's something thrilling to me about a narrator just telling you this early in a story, they were not happy now, <laughs> you know? And then it's sort of like in this fabulous introduction to this totally new world and landscape, what feels apocalyptic is just the idea of this this couple that's been together for so long. And um, we, we've been talking about powerlessness, right? This kind of powerlessness over a new unhappiness, right? Or a stable context that's been disrupted. So, you know, it's funny for me rereading this. I remember as a kid being horrified that, these, you know, these poor Martians had to live on the Dead Sea, you know, right on the bones of, you know, just all these vanished centuries and there are all these, you know, these, these, the ruins are all around them. And it, it took a while, right? I think, I think it wasn't until I reread it as an adult that I understood, of course, this is our world too. You know what I mean? There's this myth of the frontier that it's like, you know, you're, it's moving laterally like your own lifespan, you know? And, and I think that is, a, that is sort of a perennial delusion. You know, you feel like the first person to encounter this place, it's easy to forget that you're like living on a mass grave, you know, on a totally haunted planet. Could you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I was going to read, if that's okay, just the opening of the bad graph, in part because I think it owes a debt to that Bradbury story, but also because, you know, we were talking about finding the right tone to kind of fix for the reader what, what kind of world this is going to be and what they should attend to. So this is the bad graph, the Joshua Tree story. One, germination. The land looked flattened as if by a rolling pin. All aspects all directions. On either side of Highway 62, the sand cast up visions of evaporated civilization, dissolved castles that lay buried under the desert. Any human eye, goggled by a car's windshield, can graft such fantasies onto the great Mojave. And the girl and the boy in their Dodge Charger were exceptionally farsighted. Mirages rose from the boulders, a flume of dream attached to real rock. And hadn't their trip unfolded like a fairy tale, the couple later quizzed each other, recalling that strange day, their first in California, hiking among the enormous apricot boulders of Joshua Tree National Park. The girl had gotten her period a week early and was feeling woozy. The boy kept bending over to remove a pebble from his shoe, a phantom that he repeatedly failed to find. Neither disclosed these private discomforts. Each wanted the other to have the illusion that they might pause anywhere at any moment and make love. And while both thought this was highly unlikely, not in this heat, not at this hour, the possibility kept bubbling up every place they touched. This was the only true protection they brought with them as they walked deeper into the blue gold Mojave. Do you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, I think what, what took me a while there was just getting getting the music to feel right, you know, as, a, as an opening, sort of an introduction 
both to this couple, I think that's where the Bradbury felt like an inspiration, right? You sort of have a sense of who those two are and how important their landscape is. You know, it's it's not certainly not just backdrop, right? It's it's dynamic interaction between the characters and the place. But really for I think it was just really wanting to get the sound of it right so that it sort of felt almost incantatory like a fairy tale. Shirley Hazard is somebody else who I was reading a lot of when I was writing this story. She has this sort of incredible omniscient narrator, this sort of old school narrator who has like the authority of, you know, a storyteller and, and can kind of float outside the action a little bit, outside the frame. What felt what what I what, what took a while was figuring out how to get that line, you know, and hadn't it all unfolded like a fairy tale. They later quizzed each other, you know, doing that jump from sort of introducing the world of the story to signaling to readers, oh, this is something that happened in retrospect, but it has some ongoing life and in, in these characters' bodies and in their narrative, and it's totally unsettled for them, actually. <laughs> you know, it's not, there's some, there's some onrush of the present, too, um, because I think that's that was part of disorientation, both of the desert and, you know, of for, for this particular couple, we were talking about how arbitrarily stories begin and end, you know, <laughs> in some sense. And that sort of questioning felt important to me to sound that note early on, particularly after I finished a couple, you know, finished the first draft of the story and had been working on it for a while. I went back and rewrote the introduction in light of where the story ends, which is something I often have to do um, because I wanted to, I wanted that to be ringing for the reader right away. This idea, okay, well, this is a couple that is revisiting a landscape from their past and they're still both totally unsettled on the question of the future, you know, or the question of the significance of this beginning, actually, you know, that there's some kind of contest going on about, you know, did, did this story unfold like a fairy tale? What kind of, what kind of story are we living in together? Actually? Where do you write? You know, um, I have a little office in my house. So I've never had that before. But right now our house has been totally overtaken by like Daniel Tiger figurines and kids toys. So I, I, um, I've been going to the coffee shop down at the end of the street. I have two coffee shops. I try to mix it up. So I'm not like a ghost haunting both, you know, for hours. (laughs) What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? That's a great thing about our toddler. He really draws me into the world. You know, I spend a lot of time at playgrounds these days. (laughs) Speaking of rocket ships, (laughs) um, yeah, he, I think he's one, he, he really is the best antidote to sort of that kind of, and sometimes it's frustrating if, you know, sometimes you just want to stay with your imaginary people. Yeah, these days it's a, it's a lot of a lot of playgrounds. We spend a lot of time in the yard. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my husband is a book editor at Tin House Books, so unfortunately it has fallen to him to sort of tell me when <laughs> things are working or not working. Recently he... He gave me this very pithy diagnosis, which was more words, same probs. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. <laughs> so he's a, but he's a terrific reader, um, and he's, he's very honest. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, that's always hard, isn't it? Um, I think that now what's changed is, like, I will go into a funk for a, a less, for a shorter period of time. Um, and I was just thinking about that. Experience. I mean, that's not a total rejection, but hearing from, a very brilliant husband, you know what, you've you've been working on this story and it's still, you know, same same problems. That was hard and then I just had to take take a little bit of time and work on something else. 
because I was sort of heartbroken that my delusion that this was actually getting better was, you know, was false. But I deal, I deal with rejection by just getting back on the horse, I guess, you know, I, sometimes I'll take a little break and then I'll just try to get back in there and see, see what can be helped. Well, I can recommend this to you and all your readers. Elizabeth McCracken did a little segment for PBS. It's called In My Humble Opinion, and it's on failure, and it is awesome. So I've been watching that. I think I can recommend that to anybody dealing with rejection of any kind. Go watch Elizabeth McCracken on failure. If you Google it, it'll come up. She also talks about warming your hands over the private fire of revenge, you know, <laughs> like, and there's something to be said for that too, right? So if, if, if the rejection really stings, maybe you feel, you know what, I'm going to show them. I'm going to make this work. What is your favorite word? Can I tell you, this is the most obnoxious answer. I'm so sorry. I was really thinking about this and I have a bunch of, I was like, cedar is a beautiful word. Liminal I like because it sounds so kind of lemony and swampy at once. Thunder is a great one, but I really think and I'll just be honest and embarrass myself. I think right now my favorite word is my son's name, Oscar, because it's the first time I've ever, you know, naming someone is so profound. I mean, naming a character is really profound, but just getting to invite this new relationship into the language where that's his, that's him, that's who he is, and sort of discovering what that word means every day because he's changing all the time. So that, that's my favorite right now. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Karen Russell, author of the short story collection, Orange World. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.